Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. We think we're quite something. Well, Mm -hmm. humility brings us down to earth. Humus, humility. The great Quaker theologian and Christian writer, Richard Foster, best known for his 1978 Celebration of Discipline, just wrote a new book, Learning Humility, A Year of Searching for a Vanishing Virtue, which actually took him three years to write. He talks about it with me, joined by his dear friend and fellow theologian, Brenda Quinn, who is also the pastor of the Living Way Fellowship Church in Littleton, Colorado, and who helped him with this project on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics, about religion and history and culture. I'm your host, Chris Odenius, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. And I hope the format in relationship and dialogue and back and forth may help us approach the truth and have a really good time doing it. Should you want to join the conversation, please email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking to Richard Foster and Brenda Quinn. Richard James Foster is a Christian theologian, a Quaker, to be precise, an author, a pastor, and professor at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas. In 1988, Foster founded Renovare, a Christian renewal organization, and wrote the devotional Renovare Spiritual Formation Bible. His most famous book is Celebration of Discipline from 1978. It has sold a million copies. And he also has written Money, Sex, and Power in 1985, which I think has a great title for a Christian book. Uh, his, <laughs> his other books include Freedom of Simplicity, Prayer. And if I just look at the, at the list of them here, there are, there are so many. There is Celebration of Discipline, Life with God, Streams of Living Water, Sanctuary of the Soul. The list goes on and on. Um, it is a very impressive uh, body of work. And today we're talking about his most recent book, Learning Humility, A Year of Searching for a Vanishing Virtue. Uh, his collaborator on this project is Brenda Quinn. She's a pastor in the Denver area and part of the small reading team who accompanied Richard on the three-year journey of writing the book. Her insights were very helpful to the completed uh, to the completed work we're looking at today. She's also written for the Renovare Bible and other devotional texts. And I'm very pleased to have you both. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you. So good to be here. Was our pleasure. Would you like to begin with a joke or a funny story? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not very good at jokes, but let me just tell you, uh, over the years I've uh, founded several groups, and one of them was a group of writers. It's now called the Chrysostom Society. I'll actually be going to their annual gathering just in a couple of days. At any way, when I first gathered them, this was about 30 years ago or so, and uh, I, I, I didn't know getting writers together uh, <laughs> to form a group. I, I realized it was like getting 
anarchists together to form a government. I mean, we couldn't agree on anything until one of the fellows in the group suggested we write a murder mystery. And so we did, just for fun. The rule was that we couldn't confer on who done it. So uh, we're all uh, implicating everybody else in the group. And it was great fun. Uh, and we were just having fun with it, not trying to publish or anything. But, but a publishing house got a hold of it and uh, wanted to publish it. Well, you know, we were strapped for money. So <laughs> we said, sure. And uh, the book is called Carney. We met at a little place called Christ Haven up in the Rocky Mountains. And the book is called Carnage at Christ Haven. Oh, man. <laughs> That's terrific. That's also a great book, a great title for a Christian book, isn't it? Carnage of Christ. Is Christ. Uh, you make me think of Frankenstein, which is only a book because <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Mary Shelley and her friends were stuck indoors because it was so cold that summer in Switzerland, and they had to think of something, some fun activity. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, let's talk about uh, the learning humility. And at the very end of your yeah. book, you told your son, Nate, about your project, and he immediately shot back to you, oh, a book about humility. Well, that will make you famous for sure. And so in addition to being a, a smart aleck, as you called him in your, in your book, what, how did it work? Uh, obviously, you're quite famous already, so you don't need that. But uh, what is the importance of humility and its gifts? What have you learned over the course of the journey, in, in, well, for especially uh, us in the 21st century? Yeah, and you mentioned uh, you know, in our digital age, you know, with AI and everything, it sort of puffs people up. We think we're quite something. Well, mm -hmm. humility brings us down to earth. Humus, humility. And that's uh, one of the great things about it, that it just punctures all these bubbles that we have about ourselves and, uh, and just gives us a, a more accurate sense of who we really are. Just ordinary people trying to learn how to live and for Christians, how to live like Jesus. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, is there a tremendous power in humility? And I know that sounds mm -hmm. ironic, but I, I mean that question sincerely. You say in your book that we are great only when we are kneeling at the foot of the cross. And yeah. we remember that uh, Jesus reminded his apostles that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Yeah, Brenda, maybe you want to jump in on that. Well, I... I love that Richard um, opens early in the book with just a passage of scripture from the book of Philippians. Can I read just a few verses mm. here mm -hmm. that yes, are please. so, I mean, these, these verses exemplify what we're talking about when we think about power in humility. Um, Philippians two verse beginning at verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Mm -hmm. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ mm-hmm. is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mm-hmm. So he's our model. He, he's mm-hmm. our model. That This is what yeah. he did. This is the attitude that Jesus had. So how, how can we strive for anything less? Yeah. yeah. You know, that reminds me of another passage. I mean, we're in this season, liturgical season called Lent. And uh, that will lead us to the upper room. And uh, in that period, you remember how that Jesus, it says in uh, John chapter 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. And so he completely redefined what greatness is. It goes on, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Isn't that lovely? Mm -hmm. I mean, that just completely reverses our sense of who's important and who's great. Remember several times in the Gospels that the disciples were uh, arguing over who was greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus would put a little child in front of them and say, look, this is the kind of thing that uh, constitutes greatness. And of course, anytime you see people arguing about who's the greatest, behind that is the concern about who's the least. <laughs> yeah. We may, we may not be the greatest, but we sure don't want to be the least. <laughs> Yeah. We used to we used to have chickens, you know, for eggs and well, also for eating. <laughs> and you know, you watch those chickens; there is a pecking order <laughs> there, and that's true about human beings too. So uh, Jesus was just bringing all of that kind of silliness and throwing it away and saying, "Learn to love one another." Mm-hmm. Isn't, that, isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. No, and there's a big mystery here about the relationship implied. You know, if we bring ourselves under the mantle of God and we do it very humbly where we sort of see ourselves as agents of God, well, then we have great peace and freedom and all kinds of miraculous things can happen. I think that's, I think that's yep. very obvious in the lives of the saints. But if we try to run our own program, um, exactly. we can run into all, all kinds of calamities. And for me, now, just, just as I listen to you explain, it's interesting to me that even Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, should right. find himself in such a relationship with his father, you know, where he's referring back to his father and, you yep. know, who's going to sit on my left or my right? Well, my father will decide, or there's many mansions in his house. Or Right. That, <laughs> what do you think about that, that, that separation and yet unity? Yeah, exactly. Isn't, yeah. it, isn't it amazing, yeah. this wonderful 
divine community, this circle of love. You know, yeah. there there is no subordination in the Trinity. And the reason for that is that the different members of the Trinity won't have anything to do with that kind of thing. The Father is saying, oh, look to the Son, look to the Spirit. The Son is saying, oh, look to the Father, look to the Spirit. The Spirit is saying, oh, look at, look at what the Father's done. Look at what Jesus has done. I mean, it's this divine community uh, that teaches us about how to live together uh, mm -hmm. within a, in a loving community. Uh, see, God's intention is to form an all-inclusive community of loving persons with Jesus himself at the very heart of this community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. And that's the fellowship that we can have in the Trinity. Yeah. Um, con conversely, you remind us that the sin of pride is a great <laughs> satanic sin and that all the others, you quote C.S. Lewis, are flea bites in comparison. So what is Satan's problem? Well, you know, Chris, uh, you teach psychology. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that your students and you have talked about NPD, narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> that is Satan's problem to the yeah. nth degree, you know? Mm -hmm. Satan is <laughs> just caught up in this narcissism that he thinks he's something wonderful. And, yeah. uh, and uh, as I understand in psychology, this NPD uh, disorder is, uh, at least on a human level, you don't change that kind of a personality. They're, they sort of have to belittle everybody else and make themselves the center of the universe. Well, that's Satan's problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and he can't help himself. <laughs> yeah. That is what he does, is uh, to destroy everybody and everything except himself. Yeah, no matter wow. the cost. Yeah. No matter the cost, exactly. You, yeah. Your focus is only on yourself. And, uh, oh boy. And that's why humility is such a basic, fundamental virtue in the Christian life because it really uh, cuts at all of this narcissistic uh, stuff that we have, you know, this image, you know, the story of Narcissus looking in a, a pool of water and seeing his own face and thinking himself, my, <laughs> what a wonderful person I am. Yeah. <laughs> and, and humility just undercuts all of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are two very humble traditions I'd like to ask you about. One is the Lakota that you say a lot about in this book, and the other is being a Quaker, which you say almost nothing about in this book. Could you tell <laughs> us first about being a Quaker? And I know, as a Catholic, I know very little. I know that Quakers are pacifists. I know mm -hmm. they have meetings where they sit in silence and wait for the Spirit. What, mm -hmm. what should we all know about Quakers? Well, the first thing I could describe for the early Quakers— 
which was in what, the 17th century in England, the emphasis, I mean, uh, the, the individual that was extremely important in that day, George Fox, he had sought God and talked with a lot of people. And he says in his journal that when he had given up on any human source to, you know, find what he was seeking, he said, then I heard a voice of Christ Jesus, which said, there is one that can speak to thy condition. And when I heard it, Fox wrote, my heart did leap for joy. There was just that sense that Christ was here and present and alive. And so the idea that, I mean, Quakers have had historically a very high Christology uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet like unto Moses, you know, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Uh, and, and when, uh, you know, they question John the Baptist, and one of the things they ask, are you the prophet? And he says, no, one has, another's coming. And that was Jesus. Jesus is that prophet. And you remember uh, in uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration, mm-hmm. uh, the God came and said, "This is my Son, my beloved. Listen to him." So that was a key message of early Quakers: that Christ is alive; He is here to teach His people Himself. See, the fulfillment of Christ as the prophet is to teach and to guide us into all truth. And uh, so that's why Quakers would, would uh, gather in silence. They were listening for the voice of the true shepherd, Jesus. <laughs> and uh, now I've been in tons of Quaker meetings. Some of those are not too hot. <laughs> but but uh, boy, when... It, when we come together and are gathered together in the spirit, I'll tell you, things wonderful happens. And and when someone speaks, the idea mm-hmm. is that we don't break the silence; we continue it. And um, uh, so that's that's a basic idea yeah. that uh, Christ will teach us Himself. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally understand it. And I, I think that in this digital age, as we said earlier, it's a really big challenge to find times and places to be quiet. So that oh, sounds indeed. like a very you remember, helpful practice. Remember T.S. Eliot, uh, when will the word resound? When will the word be found? Not here. There's not enough silence. Mm-hmm. And that's something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so the idea, in fact... You'd find it interesting, as a Catholic, early Quakers were confused with Catholics because of their emphasis upon the real presence of Christ. And that got confused with uh, transubstantiation, (laughs) the Mm -hmm. idea, you know, that Christ is in the Eucharist. And uh, the Quakers would say, well, Christ is here. Christ is present with us. And Mm -hmm. we wait to hear his voice. His vocabulary is not hard to understand. 
he hasn't contracted laryngitis. We just try to be attentive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And one of the places where we have something similar is in Eucharistic adoration, where you can go, you know, any time of day to the chapel. And there's just you and a, and a few ladies, maybe, sitting quietly. Yep. And it, that, that's real quiet. I think that's and, and also, I mean, Brenda knows about this mm -hmm. because her church has a great tradition of, uh, of the Holy Spirit working among among his people, right? Yes. I love this discussion um, because as it relates back to how you opened up this um, time today, Chris, about the importance of humility, especially in this digital age. And both mm -hmm. of these traditions, um, the Catholics and the Quakers, and, and our tradition, I'm from a charismatic tradition, um, but which really has an emphasis on looking to the Holy Spirit and believing that he is at work and active in our lives. And, you know, our, our culture so trains us to keep our, our eyes and our minds on what's on the screen in front of us and the latest news and, and the latest things happening on social media and all of these things. And yet here we have a living God who is present to us all the time. And if we will just... Um, put our eyes and our hearts and spirits on him and to be in a listening mode, how much we can gain from him and how much direction and guidance and power in our lives we can have access to. If we can, um, you know, not listen to those messages of the culture and be caught up in what the culture is telling me to do and how the culture is defining me and, and what I need to chase after in order to be uh, really someone in this world you know, but, but God is holding out himself and his own guidance for us in so many ways. Mm. If we'll just still our spirits to listen to him and, and to focus on him. Very good. That makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. And the fact that it's a spirit as close to you as, as your breath, uh, there's a, right. you, there's a, uh, a, a little YouTube daily examine video by a fellow who is at the vineyard in Belfast, I think. And the first mm. thing he says is, try this prayer by Richard Foster. It's called a breathing prayer. You are oh. here and then breathe out and I'm with you. You are here and I am with you. And I thought, yeah, that's, very good. Yeah. yeah. So wherever yeah. you wrote that, it's, <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite, it's quite current. Um, so I often practice that often, you know, driving mm -hmm. or laying in bed or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so the other culture I want to ask you is about the Lakota. Now, you, yes. you tell us that your grandmother was Ojibwe, a nation in the region yes. of the Great Lakes and rivals yep. of the Lakota. But would you say That's something right. of these two traditions in your life? Uh, who are Iktomi's people? What have you learned from them? <laughs> and how did, you, how did you learn so much? <laughs> oh, oh, my. <laughs> well, first off, uh, my, my, I, I learned about uh, my grandmother very late in life. Uh, she died before I was even born, so I never met her. And uh, uh, it was my son uh, visiting with my father's sister, so an aunt. Uh, and um, it came out that this grandmother was Ojibwe. That's from the Great Lakes area, Lake Huron. Uh, and anyway, the Lakota, all of this came up. Of course, I had read things about Lakota from even childhood. Uh, and so I had 
No, I probably have a, I don't know, a dozen or so books on Lakota peoples. Um, and as I uh, began to think about this uh, writing, I didn't, uh, I, I just wasn't drawn to the, you know, our Latin uh, uh, um, Gregorian calendar, January, February, March. I, so I thought, well, maybe, maybe uh, Lakota calendar, because it's so rich in its connection to the earth and so on. Well, so I did that, and then I thought, well, if I'm going to use the Lakota calendar, I should learn a little bit about that background. Now, I focused my attention on uh, the uh, Black Hills, and that was very important a little later from the uh, Great Lakes area when they migrated into the central part of the U.S. and Canada. Um, and the Black Hills was such an important central part of their lives, their religious lives, their everything. And so I just began to read. Now, Lakota is, a, is an oral culture. And mm -hmm. the, the basic uh, way that they have of conveying uh, values and virtues is with storytelling. And uh, so let's see. I've got got the book here. It's okay. called the the Lakota Way: Stories and Lessons for Living, Native American Wisdom on Ethics and Character. And really, this is just stories of the twelve Lakota virtues. And the first one of those is humility. It just astonished me. I didn't change the order or anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, so. Just reading those stories, you know, it's. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm sure a lot of people know tons more than I do, but that was that was how it started. No, you're right, and they, again, that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, and uh, <laughs> all the months are are very um, connected to the seasons, and yes, um, indeed, just as I, you say. The, the chapter of the moon where the trees crack from the cold, the chapter. The... <laughs> I love the one about uh, the moon when the ducks come back. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, isn't it wonderful to watch ducks talk about humility? These ducks waddle along and uh, I'm, I'm wondering, do they have any purpose in life? I don't know. But they're just wonderful to watch. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> Well, um, I, I knew a little bit of that history, not only because I, I have taught U.S. history in the past, but oh I was visiting Mount Rushmore and the, and the Black yeah. Hills with my kids a couple of years ago. And um, I remember at that time reading a National Geographic article with them about how that land was taken in violation mm -hmm. of the Fort Laramie treater, treaties and never returned. Even after the Supreme Court founded an illegal land grab, uh, they instead of returning the land, they're like, "Well, here, here's some money that here's, you are entitled to." Money. <laughs> and the, the the Lakota said, "No, thanks. <laughs> we don't. We don't want any yeah, money. We don't trade in money. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, you don't you don't buy land in the way that we think of it. <laughs> right. So they rejected uh, the monies, and uh, of course, here we are. Yeah. 
And you, you cite an example of President Obama making overtures in, in the direction of some kind of restoration as late as 2014. But yeah. I think it also shows us that it's very hard to, to you know, it's very hard for all the people to just to just give it back. Easy for me to say in California, but mm. um, hard, but that's true of everywhere. Yeah, uh, so we have to live with this dark side of American history. What do you think it teaches us? Well... I would say very quickly that the human heart, as the Bible puts it, is desperately wicked. Who can know it? The answer to that, of course, is no human being can know the human heart. I can't know my own heart. And uh, there's, there's great wickedness, you know. Uh, Brenda, and, and out of your tradition... There's a lot of teaching, or at least used to be, about sin as a reality in the human heart. Maybe you can talk about that. Well, I, you know, I, I would come back to the passage that I read from Philippians, and, and mm. I've been thinking a lot about this during these three years that you've been writing, and we've been reading, and we've been commenting and thinking over a long period of time, and... Um, when when you read these stories about the native peoples and all the the tragic things that happened and the massacres and and yep. the ways that their culture has kind of been taken from them because of their lifestyle having to change so much and their land being taken it, it's very troubling and it's not talked about very much it's not it's not addressed all that often and certainly the answers are so hard to come by but as i've been thinking so much about humility over these years, uh, and we go back to that passage from Philippians about what Jesus did for us. Mm. And we, you know, just today we've been talking about how much power there is in humility. Um, I've, I think I've come to this understanding that even though we don't have the answers for how to rectify all of this and we can't go back in history, we can't change things. And the way that our culture is today is just the way it is. And, and these native peoples are never going to be able to go back to the way they once lived on these plains and everything's developed now. And mm. so we don't know what the answers are, but when we go back to that passage about how much of a difference Jesus humility made it, it, it allowed him to become our savior and to take our sin away, to take all of our sin upon himself and right. to make a way for us to be with him for eternity. If his humility and his humbling himself in order to do that for us could make such a difference. Uh, let's think about if God's people today could humble themselves mm. and take that take that message seriously and take on Christ in his attitude, which mm. was first and foremost of humility. We we don't know what the answers are, but if there's if there is a power in that humility that made such a difference when Jesus did what he did, there's got to be a power in it now if his people take that same humility on ourselves. And I, I just think that's that's where God will come in and he will bring the answers that we don't know now, but he has the answers, he knows. And yeah. isn't that exciting to think about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes the, um, what is the Martin Luther King quote? The, uh, the arc of justice is, no, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. It bends towards yes. justice. However, it does not bend toward justice just on its own. Human beings, we have a responsibility 
even in our little world with our neighbors and whatever. Because uh, when you think of the dark side of American history, I mean, what was there, you would know, Chris, of like five of the First Nations peoples, Mm -hmm. about 500 tribes. And uh, of course, the Trail of Tears, all of these kinds of terrible things. It shows how much greed can control human beings. And uh, I mean, with the Black Hills, uh, you know, they made all of those treaties at Fort Laramie before they discovered that there was gold there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that <laughs> that's all it took to yeah. take over uh, that wonderful uh, oval strip of land. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the beauty of this book is that you invite us to walk with you for a whole year and you really take your time. Uh, you're in the autumn of your life and you can spend a day taking a hike or sitting by the fire. <laughs> you can you can spend like your activity could be like, I'm going to go through the snow and collect the mail and come back. And there's a real, <laughs> there's a slow pace of this book. And I, I'm in the opposite. I'm in the middle of it. I'm a middle-aged teacher with uh, adolescent children and I'm working and running around and there's, you know, soccer and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and mountain bikes and 500 <laughs> things all at the same time. And it's really hard for me just to remember to slow down and take yes. a breath and welcome the Holy Spirit and listen, listen yeah. and pray. Um, mm-hmm. But uh what are the blessings of your age as you think about a life well lived oh and uh, how, how, how do you, you know, how do you meditate daily and how do you, where, where are you? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not quite as serene as you think. <laughs> <laughs> there are uh, tasks to do, but, um, and, and Brenda, in a memo, you can comment on, you know, talk about in the midst of things with a congregation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, all that goes on in congregational life. But I was thinking of that uh, lovely statement from John Muir, who was a great naturalist of the early part of the 20th century. Uh, uh, Yosemite was really his special ground and uh, he founded the uh, uh, Sierra Club, I believe. Anyway, he says, he writes, When I discovered a new plant, I sat down beside it for a minute or a day to make its acquaintance and hear what it had to tell. <laughs> well, that is one of the wonderful values of... Uh, as you put it, the autumn of life, it's actually the renaissance period of life because you can take the time to think and to dream new dreams and ideas. So uh, that's the way I like to think of it as the renaissance period of my life. (laughs) And how do you feel, Brenda, as you are uh, pastoring a congregation and writing things and helping with various projects and doing 500 things all at the same time. 
<laughs> How do you cultivate that stillness, that Quaker? Well, I, I love having models like Richard and like our older generation who are in that season of life. And I, I always want to say to our listeners, if, if that's you, if you are in that season of life, how much we need you. Mm-hmm. I think often mm-hmm. um, the older people get, the more they feel like they're not relevant anymore and they're not really of much use anymore to anyone because they can't relate to all the newfangled things that are going on. And <laughs> everyone has excuses why, you know, no one needs me anymore. And that is that you know that is a lie of the enemy. We need the older generation to remind us about what's important and, and mm-hmm. those who have time and who, who have lives that are a little bit slower. Um, to model that for us and, and remind us that even it, it really doesn't matter what stage of life we're in, uh, in terms of being able to prioritize being present wherever we are. And we may have a lot going on in our days. You know, my, I'm kind of in the same stage as you are, Chris, maybe a little bit further along than you are, but, um, you know, the congregational life is busy. I have, um, a teen and two young adults who still have, a lot of busyness going on that's that involves my husband and I. And so there's a lot going on, but yet we can still prioritize being present wherever we are. And, you know, when you're with your students in the classroom, um, teaching them how to be present, how to, how to not just rush mm-hmm. through life, but just like John Muir to, 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 to quietly observe where we are and, and to contemplate and to think deeply about things and to slow down wherever we can. And, prioritize what we're doing and, and let, let some of the things go so that we can be present where it's important and for the people who are important to us. And I think that's, that's a way of seeing the world and a way of being that we can start earlier in life. You know, not, I don't think we have to wait until we're older to do that. (laughs) That's Um, right. Yeah. That's true. Uh, And I I, think a lot of, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say that no is a good word. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's entirely possible for many things to just say no. I don't need that. I had to struggle with that because I knew that uh, in a lot of instances, it made me look uh, less, what, a less spiritual, less important, whatever. But I would say no so I could for example, say yes to my kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this case now, grandkids. And uh, so it's okay. You can say no now and again. Yeah. No, even even Jesus would say, like, I can't do this right now. I have to go pray. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay. And uh, my last question is about fire, because fire mm. is a big character in the, in your story. And we, we like fire in my family and I have a fire pit outside of my house. And usually my neighbors come by uh, and we sit down on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon and, and sit around the fire and just build a fire, build a fire. Good the kids run you. around, the adults, you know, drink beer and, and chat about their lives. <laughs> um, and yeah. I know that you yeah. tended the fire as a boy when you were eight years old or so. Mm-hmm. And that has stayed with you that, that, that role. Um, and I, I learned from your book that the true name of the Lakota Nation is the Seven Fires Council. You told us of a story where you and, and your son and maybe your grandson also, I might be confusing it, visited a Cherokee yeah. no, um, place yep, where fire right. was a big deal. And if, the, and if the young man who was in charge of the fire fell asleep on the job, he was, he was killed. That, 
Is that That's correct? Right. Yeah. So <laughs> this is, is a big deal. So what what does fire what does fire teach us? Well, you know, just yesterday, I had a fire going because we had a little bit of snow, and so I had the fire blazing all day long. It was great fun. And you know, if you take a coal from the fire and put it by itself, it will very quickly burn out. But if you keep, I would keep those coals together. And when you do that, they really burn. Now, that's a teaching for us. We don't do these things and live this life isolated from other people. We do it together. So that's one of the things we can learn. Another is that um, uh, fire needs air. I mean, it really needs air. I can cut off the air in uh, my little fireplace, and uh, that fire goes out. And so, and I can add air and modulate the air that uh, I put in to uh, to see. We need air. Mm-hmm. That's the Holy Spirit. We need the life. Remember how Jesus said, compared the wind Mm -hmm. to the Holy Spirit. Well, we need it. And the other thing I might mention is the unpredictability of fire. Mm. And, uh, I mean, it will go in different ways. It needs tending. So if we could learn to tend the fire in our souls and uh, keep the burning, keep keep it with the right air, feed it in the right way. Those things, you know, it's, it's wonderful to just watch a fire. Sometimes the flames are dancing mm-hmm. like crazy, and, and uh, sometimes the popping of the, of the wood. Uh, and uh, it's, it's so much more interesting than television with... Mm-hmm. It's boring commercials. <laughs> so uh, those are a few things yeah. about fire. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's perfect. Brenda, what do, you, what do you think about fire specifically or maybe humility in general? Would you like to have the last, the last word here? Yeah. Oh, well, I just love the reminder in a, a flame of fire that it's, it's the warmth and the presence and the power of God always with us, always present to us. And, um, you know, sometimes we, we might light a candle when we're sitting with God, reading mm. scripture or in prayer to remind yes. us that he is ever present to us. And we know the power of fire. And, and that's a reminder of God's power in our lives, that he is present for whatever is happening, whatever need we have, um, whatever whatever we want to worship him for, there's, there's just power in being present to him and knowing that he is there and living. He's our living God who is with us and available to us and at work in our lives. Um, so what a wonderful reminder. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Brenda, and thank you, Richard, and thank you for your hour today, and especially for this book, Learning Humility, A Year of mm. Searching for a Vanishing Virtue from Inner Varsity Press. Uh, and I wonder if you might be willing to close us in a prayer or a blessing. Well, let me 
just uh, quote the words really at the very end of the book where I urge you, you who are listening, be brave enough to learn humility. Be strong enough to learn humility. Be courageous enough to learn humility. Be compassionate enough to learn humility. And now for every person listening, may there come upon you a deep settledness of spirit, of mind, of heart, that you might turn like a needle to the pole star of the Spirit, who is Jesus, the Christ, and that you might fall in love with him over and over and over again. That, as the Apostle Paul put it, there might come upon you a life of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. May it be so. Amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you. Hail, hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Chris Odinitz, Brenda Quinn, and Richard Foster recorded this conversation, episode 54, on March 28, 2023. It was the feast day of St. John of Capistrano, a 15th century Franciscan friar and priest, a reformer of that order, a theologian, writer, inquisitor, and military chaplain who, after the fall of Constantinople in 1453, led a crusade against the Turks. He was canonized in the 18th century, and in 1776, the mission of San Juan de Capistrano was founded in his honor and patronage in California. By the way, next week, I'll be talking with Sister Maria Catherine, a Dominican sister who lives in that very city today, San Juan Capistrano. She teaches literature and theology, and we'll be talking about her early interests in witchcraft, and how she found her way to God and to the Dominican order, and about her favorite movie, Babette's Feast. So if you haven't seen that movie, you should see it this week. The music for our program comes from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Check them out at www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, comes from a window in the Spanish monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos, which the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales have kindly let me take from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. I thank you so much for listening. Please email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every email. This is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing.